Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences, Dr. Steve Wood. And with me today, again, Baxter Drennan for the third time. Baxter, how the heck are you? Man, I'm great. Uh, happy to be on. Uh, you know, I'm hoping for a hat trick, uh, swag or something uh, from the good folks at Courtroom Sciences. I think Meg, if you're here on one more time, I think you have to take on co-hosting duties. So there you we'll go. <laughs> I mean, there you go. I can use up. a break. <laughs> <laughs> so good to see you again, though. And obviously we, ha- we got Bill Kanaski, Dr. Bill Kanaski. Bill, how are you doing? Yo, yo, yo. Um, living the dream as usual. Yeah. Uh, what's what's on your mind, though, Kanaski? I know every every time we get on here, you always got you got something burning. But yeah, so. I'm a little I'm a little bit out of shape. Um, I, uh, you know, I get this email from uh, Verizon <clears throat> saying that, you know, my phone's paid off and I can get a new phone. I'm eligible for a new phone. I'm thinking, well, what what, what kind of, you know, underhanded deal are they going to try to screw me over with? So I, I go unprepared. I do my research. It turns out that I can trade in my phone and it's going to pay for the, it's going to pay for the, the new phone. Right. It's like a $5 difference. It's like, wow, this is pretty impressive. So I get this brand new phone. Everything's going good. And they said, Oh, by the way, I said, what? And they go, do you have one of these? Yeah. They go, you see that, that USB. I go, yeah. Yeah. We don't do that anymore. They, they screw you at the cell phone shop. You know what they do? Every time they come out with one of these new phones, you know what they do? They change the plugs. They change the wires. So all the, by the way, these are 30 bucks a pop. The fast charger, Steve, $30. You ever leave one of these in a hotel room and you're like kicking yourself on the airplane? You're like, shit, God damn it, right? $30. And I have six of them sitting right here, useless, completely useless with this new phone. So I have to buy two of them. Otherwise I can't charge my phone, right? I got one for home, one on the road. So now I'm, I'm down, uh, you know, 60 plus tax for no good reason. There's no good reason. And they keep doing it and they do it and they do it. And no one complains until right now. And so I'm stuck. If you need one of these, I'll give it to you. Or maybe I'll, there you I'll, go. I'll mark it down to 15. I'll that's mark Baxter it down to swag. Give that to him. Give that to Baxter. I was going to say, Steve and I both have old phones. Could you slide those our way? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to slide those your way. It's unbelievable. So that's, that's, that's my rant for today. I just was not happy about that. They do. That's a... That is a, uh, it's a conspiracy and it's well-coordinated to make money. It's a whole nother, that's a whole nother profits, podcast. Profits, you, profits over, not profits over safety. Like it's profits over customer satisfaction. Thank you very much. That's the rant for the day. With, with the way you're sounding, did you get a, a flip phone? I did not oh. get a flip phone, Steve. I got the regular, <laughs> and I okay, went Samsung. So- Samsung is the only way to go. Android. Anybody else? Sorry, I don't want to FaceTime you. So that's probably why I have this. No, you can't FaceTime me. Love it. All right. So speaking of, you know, FaceTime. Never mind. I don't and, need his chargers now. I only have <laughs> don't, 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 don't set them off. <laughs> so kind of the, the, why, why I brought on uh, Baxter and, and why I have you, Bill, on, on the podcast is this kind of topic that we're going to talk about today has grown out of conversations really multiple conversations that Baxter and I have had about this concept of, you know, saying it depends or some variation of it depends. When you get asked these tough questions, the reptile theory questions, the ones that the generalized ones that, that, you know, opposing counsel wants you to say yes or no to when the answer is not really yes or no. And, you know, it can cause some heartburn. I know on, on some attorneys to hear that or to, for them to hear that their witnesses should say it depends 
But I guess really, Bill, I want to kick it to you kind of from a psychological standpoint about why it depends is appropriate and why you wouldn't want to do something other than that. Yeah, three, three things. So first of all, it's often the truthful answer, right? I mean, the witness is taking an oath to tell the truth. And if that's the truthful answer, that's the truthful answer. So that's, you know, you can check that box. It's really hard to get in trouble with that answer at particularly at deposition uh, or, or, even, or even a trial. Number two, um, and this is where I think some harp, some defense attorneys have heartburn, is with any answer, whether it be yes, no, you know, uh, it depends, whatever. If you're giving the same answer over and over and over and over, you, you do sound like a broken record from a perceptual point of view. So that's why there are very, there are various, you know, just like instead of saying yes, you could say I agree with that, right? Instead of saying I agree with that, you could say. Uh, that's a true statement. You're, you're saying the same thing. With it depends, right? It, depend, it depends on the situation. Depends on the full set of circumstances. That's, here's my favorite. That's not necessarily true in all situations. Bam. It's the same answer, Steve. And it, it's, 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 it's highly effective and it's truthful. Uh, sometimes that's the case. Sometimes that's true, right? Not always. In some circumstances, there are very, many variations of that answer, and they're all the truthful answer, assuming that the question is, you know, a, a general, usually hypothetical question that is an incomplete hypothetical by design to lock the witness into an inflexible position, right? So we got truthfulness, we, we, we have the different variations, but third and, and most importantly, I'm going right to it. I'm going, I'm going right to the topic you don't want me to go to is if they start pivoting away right they start pivoting away right um and they start explaining the problem here is we want to maximize we want the witness to max this is what we we want to maximize cognition okay we want to maximize cognition which means you got your question then we're going to have what we call forcing cognition, a two to five second pause to max, I mean, maximize cognition, right? And then the odd, the statistical odds of that answer being accurate are very, 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 very high. Once you start jumping into explanation, right, you've quadrupled the length of your answer and you've cut your cognition in half. Let me repeat that. You've quadrupled the length of your answer. Maybe you've, you've multiplied it by a factor of 10 if you're one of those, you know, I want to give a 35, 40 second answer. And you've only, you've only used your brain for a second and a half, right? So those are the three reasons why yeah, that answer, but just the cognition is so important. And where witnesses get into a lot of trouble with these longer explanations is then the answer gets naturally disorganized. But number two, they have not fully thought out what they want to say. And so it brings inaccuracy into the equation as well. So it's very, very dangerous. Yeah. And I think, Baxter, to kick it to you, when you talk about inaccuracy of the answers and that, you know, how do you see it from an attorney's standpoint about the effectiveness of saying it depends or the variation of it? Or are you more of the, you can see the, the pivoting method, I guess, where do you stand on that? And what are your thoughts? Well, I, one of the things I always enjoy uh, about the podcast and listening to you and Bill is, uh, well, I guess I enjoy it when what you say matches up with my experience and, and kind of 
um, what empirically I end up doing, you know, matches with the science. And this is, uh, I didn't know that, but this is one of those times. For me, I, I like uh, the whatever version of it depends. I like preparing my witnesses for, for that because it um, allows at least an opportunity for me to control how a particular narrative comes out or how, you know, how that uh, answer comes out fully. So um, if, if you give the it depends answers, there are some plaintiff's lawyers who take that as the answer and move on. Uh, if so, uh, all the better for me because I have full control over how that question ultimately gets answered or how that uh, story ultimately gets told. Um, you know, if they continue to press on uh, to, to Bill's point, it still is going to shorten the answers. And it's going to give additional time for my witness to to think of and formulate their answer. So each component comes out, hopefully, in a more organized way. But th this is the kind of thing, uh, how these questions are answered and, and ultimately how, as an attorney, I want to control these. That I think you, you have to go back and think about what's the goal of the deposition. Um, if it's my client and we're going to try this case. And we've, you know, we've evaluated the case. We've made a decision that this is on the trial list. You know, I want to keep as much information as possible. We've got to answer truthfully. But if my, you know, the truthful answer is it depends and the plaintiff's lawyer doesn't ask what it depends on, Their then th there's no, you know, I'm not going to come back on the back end and clean that up. I'm going to wait for trial and, and yeah. use that to my advantage. So, you know, flip side. Uh, and I still think I'm in good shape if this is the case that we want to settle because it's, you know, how we want to settle it. And the, the purpose of the deposition is to get the best settlement we can. Then, uh, you know, it depends still get, uh, potentially affords me the opportunity to control that when I ask the questions in you know, a non-adversarial way with a witness who trusts me to help bring that narrative out in, in a way that's positive for our case, um, you know. I can understand and appreciate the the idea of the pivot. Um, I think in the hands of a skilled plaintiff's attorney, there are downsides to it. Uh, I mean, it, it can be used against you. Uh, the same thing here. I mean, we're talking about difficult questions. Given an it depends answer uh, with a good skilled plaintiff's attorney, he's going to follow up or she's going to follow up and continue to press to ultimately get you know some answer to the question. Uh, you know, we've recently you know. Seeing if they if the answer they get uh, beyond it depends they don't like it they just keep answering the you know asking the question hoping for a different answer, but you know with the pivot and the full explanation I, I lose all control at the moment the witness you know as yeah. the lawyer the moment the witness opens her mouth uh, with you know an it depends type answer again if it's truthful um, it gives me an opportunity to have some control over how that comes out as an attorney. I think that's a good point. And, uh, you know, Bill, as far as the truthfulness, I think one of the issues that people always have with the it depends is they, the, the witness looks dodgy. The witness looks like they're not trying to tell the truth. But to your point, you're saying that the it depends is actually the truthful answer. It's not the witness's fault that opposing counsel is, is not following up to ask them what it depends on. Right. Absolutely. And, and here's the rule. A witness only looks like they're evasive if they're behaving evasively. There's ways to say this in a very articulate way <clears throat> that are very convincing. And um, again, they're, 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 they're truthful answers. Now, my favorite is, um, and this is, this is absolutely my favorite, the follow-up question of what does it depend on, right? That's a trap question because you cannot answer that question. 
That's an impossible, that's a tell me everything question. And that's the type of question that we train our witnesses for. It's a t so it's impossible to answer that question. So the only appropriate response, and this is typically what shuts it down, is what does it depend on? It depends on everything. I, I'd have to be in that specific situation to tell you what would be appropriate. I'd need to be in that circumstance. We do this in med mal cases all the time. Well, doctor, you have this patient, right? And they have symptoms X, Y, and Z. So that means you need to order this particular test. Well, that really depends on the clinical circumstances. Follow-up. Well, <laughs> I just gave you the clinical circumstances. Answer, well, no, you didn't. You, you, gave, me, you gave me three factors. Okay, well, what, what more do you need to know to answer my question? I'd have to assess that patient personally. Then I'd, I'd tell you what test I'd order. What juror is not going to like that? That's, how, that's what I want my doctor doing, right? But that applies to any claim that applies to any uh um um cause of action so um but again the witness has to be trained in this chat this is a chess match i mean we're breaking this down to the molecule right moment by moment this is not a big picture thematic thing this is a this is a cat and mouse chess match and when the witness is properly trained they can not only get through it successfully but actually come across in a very uh convincing way it's not it's good and baxter go ahead yeah, I would say to follow that. So, to the you know one of the things we're trying to do too is limit what what of these questions ultimately get in at a trial. And if the witness gives an it depends answer and then gets to everything, you know, of course I'm going to be objecting. But this is an improper hypothetical, and yeah. it allows me to go file a motion in limine to keep this series of questions or types of questions uh, out at a trial. And if if we don't, you know, if you answer it in such a way as, well, I do have all the information, I can just answer his question. Uh, that's going to, at the very least, hurt, uh, but more likely kill my opportunity to have a motion and limity granted on that uh, particular line of questions. Yeah, it's all good. And I guess, you know, that going back and once again, you know, from a trial perspective, I mean, have you seen Baxter, have you seen this work in trial or Bill, have you seen it work in trial? I mean, I guess one of the questions is always, what have we seen from our experience? Do jurors hear after trial where they don't like it or they, they think it makes them look bad? Or does that really kind of go to what you're saying, Bill, about the only way it looks bad is if your witness is doing something from a nonverbal behavior that makes it look bad? Yeah, I mean, in 18 years of doing this, I've rarely heard anything negative uh, from a juror with any of the variations of the it depends as long as they're consistent. But it's really the delivery of that, right? Um, can you lose some credibility by sticking with the same words over and over and over. Yeah, I, I think you can. That's why there's variations of that. There's variations of agreement, right? I agree. That's true. That's correct. Yes. Um, so I think with any of these, and that's really fine tuning witnesses, right? I mean, tr I mean, trust me, I'm, I, I was working with a truck driver a couple months ago who doesn't have a high school education, really limited intellectually, great, great, nice guy. And I'm like, okay, there's four answers you're given. And I don't care if you say it depends 19 times because that's that was his capability, that particular witness, right? Um, but I think with, with, with most witnesses, you can, um, you can really work with them. Uh, but yeah, the, uh, the way it's coming across, um, uh, you know, uh, facial expression, uh, body language, uh, tone, right? How you say anything. 
has a huge, huge impact on how effective it's going to be. So you, you may read it on the, the transcript and it reads one way. And then you, you know, you go, <laughs> you, you watch that person say the same thing. And it's not the, it depends getting them in trouble. It's the manner in which they're saying it is what's getting, getting them in trouble um, in the eyes of the jury. Good point. Uh, and Baxter, you know, actually, and I think you, you've touched on it a little bit and you know, I talked before is, I guess the, it depends and, the, and really kind of puts some pressure on the defense counsel, right? If they don't ask what the follow-up is, I think as defense counsel, you don't want to leave the it depends just sitting out there though. Right? I guess it just doesn't work if defense counsel isn't prepared to go up there and clean up anything or get their witnesses to expand, right? Absolutely. Uh, and I think when you plan to do that matters. Again, if it's a case that you're going to take to trial and this is a deposition and you've given the it depends answer, um, you know, you save that for trial. Um, but if, if you're at a trial and, you know, a question is not fully answered or there's some factors uh, that matter that we can't explain, uh, I think it's incumbent on the defense lawyer to come back and clean that up. And, and again, I think that's one of the the uh, advantages of this type of strategy is that it affords the defense lawyer the opportunity to control when and how those things get explained. Yeah, good point. Uh, and I think one last thing is, and I think what, Bill, you've hit on this multiple times as well about there's variations of it. You know, yeah. when I when I work with witnesses and when you work with witnesses, we always kind of talk too about you know, using that witness's voice as far as them being comfortable with what the responses is, right? We don't want them to think, well, what would Bill or Steve tell me to say? What are the five words I should use in this situation? It's more of, here's the guideposts of you're not saying yes and you're not saying no, you're saying some variation in between or the shades of gray, how you get there is gonna be kind of a personal, uh, personal preference because if when you do that, it alleviates some of that stress on them to try to remember, right? Like you said, oh, I have to say these sets of words yeah they have to be comfortable and that's why the training is so important so they develop a balancing act like everything else now there is one situation where an it depends or a variation will get your witness in deep deep trouble and that would be on a factual question okay that's a yeah yeah isn't it true <laughs> isn't it true you know at two o'clock you know in this medical record you know you ordered this test isn't that true doctor well, it depends. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> it depends isn't going to work on factual questions. Um, and so that that would be the real, you know, uh, that would that that would hurt. But with with those uh, hypothetical questions, um, it's very appropriate. The other area, <laughs> which is more obvious, where it depends is going to create havoc. OK, would be uh, what we call the uh, the money question or the blame question. Right. Um, you know. Now, isn't it true uh, at, at trucking company A, B, and C, you'd agree with me, ma'am or sir, that um, your, your hiring practices are woefully inaccurate or, or, or they're woefully uh, inadequate, right? They're, they're insufficient. Uh, the way you hire people uh, is careless. It's reckless. And you end up with bad employees. Isn't that true? Uh, it depends. <laughs> no, no, no. The answer is no. Yeah. So the two ways you're going to get in trouble strategically, if it depends, if it's a factual question, it's a factual question has to be yes or no. But then if it's some sort of accusation slash blame question, um, the it depends is, is real, real trouble because the answers to whether it be standard of care questions or 
uh, negligence questions. Uh, it, it has to be, uh, it really has to be a, a hard no, because, you know, any, any skillful, skillful cross-examiner, if you give them an inch, just a, a centimeter, they're going to drive a truck through it. And so there needs to be really hard um, answers on those factual and blame questions. But when it starts getting into the generalized hypothetical, the reptile questions, uh, if you start giving those absolute answers, that you're, you're going right into the the jaws of the monster. Yeah. And I, you know, we weren't going to, I wasn't planning to talk about it, but I think you bring up a good point, you know, that I wanted to talk to Baxter about, you know, when you talk about not saying it depends the factual things, obviously there's times in Baxter, you know, we talk about eating the bad facts where you want your witnesses, no matter how bad it sounds, or if it's factually correct, they need to say yes. Right. And, and that's where yeah. pivoting, you wouldn't want to pivot. So the pivoting comes in. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's. Uh, I, I, is there more than one strategy to answering factual questions? I mean, you you tell the truth, and again, if there's some elaboration that needs to come from that, you know, if the plaintiff's lawyer doesn't follow up, you're, you know, that's our job is to know. As a defense lawyer, that's our job to know the facts well enough to know the issues well enough. If if there needs to be additional explanation with that fact, that we come back and do it. Um, in my opinion, you know, not just answering the question we hope they ask but yeah, let me and, let me let me tell you a story about a recent story about pivoting in this case is going to trial uh in in, in august in, in north carolina um now little do people know uh but steve and i do some plaintiff work um you know plaintiff plaintiff claims and plaintiff attorneys are all not the same and 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 uh the the, I think exclusively almost uh, the plaintiff work that we do is in commercial litigation sure. because we have traditional defendants that are now the plaintiffs, right? So one of our traditional defense clients may now be in litigation against a different company on a contract dispute, right? Something business related uh, commercial litigation. Um, so we do a lot of work there. And I got to tell you, these plaintiff attorneys that do that work I know them. I'm friends with them. They love it when defense witnesses pivot. Love it. Love it. Why? Because they're opening the door to multiple counterattack opportunities. It's easy. It's easy. And it can't be sustained. See, the dangerous thing about pivoting is you may pull it off here and there over a six, seven, eight hour deposition. Mm -mm. Then your cognitive fatigue sets in. It just takes one slip. And it's going to be trouble. And so I know for a fact, plaintiff attorneys, they want the witness to pivot and to pivot repeatedly over the course of testimony, particularly in deposition, because it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when uh, they're going to they're going to step in it. Right. And then number two, at trial, this is this is I mean, at trial, we've seen this in multiple mall. I mean, feedback from dozens and dozens and dozens of 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 mock juries. The mock jurors cannot stand witnesses that pivot. They consider them to be defensive, consider them to be evasive. And then what ultimately happens is, uh, and Baxter brought this up, a really good uh, cross-examiner is going to say, um, well, okay, thank you for that narrative answer. I appreciate that. But you know, that really wasn't my question. So I want you to listen carefully this time. And by the time that happens the third time, every juror is looking at their watch going, God, like, come on. <laughs> like answer the damn question. Jeez. Like what's the, it makes the witness look really bad and good questions can really capitalize off 
the pivot efforts to make the witness um, not only look and look evasive and look defensive, but then as those little jabs come in afterwards, that's when your amygdala hijack comes in. That's where that fight or flight response starts coming in. Typically a fight where um, the, 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 the cross examiner sees that the witness is pivoting. They start picking on the pivoting. The witness does what? Fight or flight. And before you know it, you have an argument going on between a witness and a professional arguer. Let me, let me repeat that one more time. You have a fight going on, right? Like a cage match, like a UFC match between a witness, not an attorney, a witness that's going to go toe-to-toe an argument with a professionally trained arguer. Um, that's going to end in a knockout. 100% of the time, there's zero chance that anything positive happens for that witness, which is just one of the hundred reasons why it's the dumbest idea in the world. And that obviously makes your life more difficult then, right, Baxter, to, to deal with that. Now, all of a sudden, you got a bad deposition testimony and you're prepping for trial or it happens to you at trial and then you're really in trouble. Yeah. But, you know, afterwards, after the fact, you talk with your witness and, and let them know, hey, they kind of got under your skin or they know they got under your skin. But then now you have to explain that moment you had where you got your jabs in and you, you had that where you feel better because now you argued. Look at what you did to the case, essentially. Yeah, I mean, people expect lawyers to, to argue. They don't expect witnesses to. Jurors yeah. don't get, um, you know, I've never seen them like it. Um, you earlier, I can't remember exactly the question you asked and Bill answered it, but you, you know, about what, what we see with jurors on, on you know, responding to some of these things. Well, jurors, jurors rarely get to see, you know, defense lawyers, bad witnesses, because if they were bad at deposition, cases get settled. Yeah. Uh, and that's, yeah. it's one of my, um, well, one of the things that, that I really like about Hall Booth Smith and, and our practice is we're trying to overwork a case within the first 120 days. Nobody's going to outwork us on those first 120 days so that we get to try cases on the back end. You know, if you miss on the, if you miss on those first 120 days, you miss on your depositions, you're not ready for those. You're not going to get to try the case. So we, you know, I just, I don't have a lot of experience with bad witnesses at trial because we've, you know, yeah. those have been weeded out before we get there. Uh, there was a, let me tell you another story. So there's this witness I, I worked with recently uh, this is on a, a, a healthcare matter. Uh, he's a surgeon and a re- really nice guy. And he had, he had been deposed and uh, I will not mention any names. I'm just going to, I'm just going to say, how do I say this? Dude? He, he, in part of his deposition prep, he was instructed to pivot on every bad fact. Well, this, this deposition turns out to be a disaster and, but medically, they had such a good case medically, but man, the deposition is bad. So they, this is here in Florida. They go to trial. They called me seven days before the trial and said, can you fix this? I'm like, here we go. And I went through this deposition with this and I just, I pummeled this surgeon. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Because he just, he was fighting on every single fact and then this is a great, great part of the story because he lost his mind during the death back to fight or flight. So at one point, the uh, the plaintiff attorney says, doctor, I have to ask you a question. I, I don't I, I don't mean to be disrespectful at all. Um, do you have a learning disability? 
doctor's like, no, I'm a, I'm a surgeon. He goes, okay. Recent head injury, concussion? No. You on any medication that, you know, maybe cognitive, cognitively is, a, well, no. He goes, because that's funny because, you know, I've asked you the last 10 questions. You haven't answered one of my questions. So I thought maybe I thought maybe you may be suffering from some disability and the doctor just lost his shit. I can right imagine there. that turned out but, bad. But, but that was a brilliant move by the attorney to say, like, I know what you're doing and now I'm going to pick on you and try to humiliate you. And the doctor took, you know, hook, line, sinker. So after spending a day with me, uh, the day before trial, uh, all day on a Sunday, again, away from my family. That's what I, that's what I did. I'm not doing that anymore. Different podcast. <laughs> um, he goes to trial. He does not pivot. He utilizes all the skills that many of them that we've discussed today and he wins going away. I think the jury was out like an hour and 15 minutes and comes back with a defense verdict. And they interviewed the jurors afterwards. Oh, we loved them. We loved them. He was straightforward. He was honest. He was getting you know, all those things that you want to hear. If, you, if they would have saw this person's deposition, it would have been a very, very different person. And that's another part of this whole pivoting thing. When you start to pivot, it changes you as a person. Why? Because you become argumentative. You become defensive. You're not professional. You're not compassionate. You're not convincing. And you're playing right into the enemy's hands. So that's a very positive story. But again, um, this stuff is being actively taught out there. Um, I, I think it's unethical based on what based on what we know right now. I mean, I think it's I don't think it's ethical to teach a witness to do that. I think it's setting them up for disaster. If I was <laughs> if I was if I was a company owner and was taught to pivot, my company got sued and we lost. I'd be bad faith, bad faith. Bad, I, I'd start suing suing my attorney saying, well, you guys taught me this bullshit uh, and it got me in all this hot water. So there's uh, plenty of examples out there um, that show that uh, selling not a good technique. It's a, it's a dangerous technique and we have the much better techniques uh, to, get, to get positive results. And that's what we're all here for, right? We want positive results. And sometimes that positive result is a really favorable settlement because your witnesses perform well at that. Other times that positive result is you're going to the courtroom and um, the, the witness does the things necessary to connect with that jury and to not step on those landmines that are surely going to be placed out there for them. Yeah. Baxter, I want to give you the last word on this as far as go ahead. Well, I was going to ask Bill a question if, if, if we've got time. Uh, yeah, sure. So I got all the time it, in the world for you, Baxter. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned, and I think, I think people would be interested in this. You mentioned, you know, talking about pivoting and it, it, it can result in argumentative. It can result in the witness, you know, sort of fighting back. Yeah. And I mean, frankly, I think from from a witness perspective and seeing clients that that concept of fighting back and given being, you know, given the opportunity to 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 mm -hmm. do that is is something they see the witness sees as positive. I understand the explanation of, of why ultimately it's not. So how do we how do we get a witness past this idea of they want to fight back, they want to win? Yeah, you know, in that moment. Yeah, two 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 things. Number one, education. The entire discussion we just had, the witness needs to know that. Like you may be thinking this, but that's counterintuitive. Here's what we know: we know how juries make decisions. 
Okay. We know how, by the way, the people teaching pivoting don't study jury decision-making. Just want to throw that out there as well. Uh, <laughs> sorry, just, just being factual. Uh, and so yeah, educating them on how jurors make decisions is, is step one in that process. Step two, which I don't think gets nearly enough attention. Okay. Defense attorneys can fight. Defense attorneys win cases. Witnesses don't. Witnesses can lose cases, but witnesses will not just go, oh, wow, I heard that one witness and boy, yeah, I, no, 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 that's, that's not how this works. And so uh, jurors expect defense counsel to fight. They expect defense counsel to get nasty on a cross-examination. They expect defense counsel. Why? It's their job. They don't, they don't want that or expect that uh, from witnesses. So you got to tell the witness, your job is to connect with this jury to educate this jury, to have this jury like you and trust you. Let me as the attorney do the, let me do the dirty work. I'll get in the mud. Okay. I'll roll around with plants to turn the mud. That's not your job. And we've had great success uh, with witnesses, um, um, educating them on those two factors. I think that's, I think that's great advice. Uh, Baxter, actually, I did want to ask you, I mean, as far as that goes, I think Bill brings up a good point though, where in, you know, this isn't once again, we're going to probably another podcast on, on the client attorney client relationship. Yes. But I think it takes, you know, on. to what you're saying though, Bill, it takes some sort of rapport between the attorney and the witness though, to, to, for the witness to say, okay, Baxter, I trust you to get in the mud and fight for me. I don't need to do that. But I think that is another thing that is, is important to understand too, is educating them, but also getting them to trust you to know that they, you have their best interests in mind so that they will feel comfortable letting you fight the battle for them so they don't respond. Absolutely. Um, I, and kind of where my question to Bill came from, I, I've got a witness prep uh, PowerPoint that I run folks through and kind of go, go into this, don't fight. And I actually got, you know, prepped a witness, told them not to fight, get a call from the owner. that was like, hey, we're, you know, we're concerned. You don't want to fight in our case. You want us to just you know, kind of lay back and answer questions kind of deal. And I'm like, well, that's not it at all. It's just that you've hired me yeah. and you're paying me to fight. I don't want our witness to fight. Um, and it, it, you know, I, I added to my presentation at that point of, you know, that, that line, but a lot of witnesses don't like the idea that they're not going to be fighting through their deposition. And I, you know, what Bill said was spot on. We've got to teach them that that's not their job. Yeah. And then the other thing I tell, and we show them all kinds of videos of people trying to fight and falling flat on their face. And, and we've published papers about this. I give speeches around all of the, that's where that whole amygdala hijack comes in. That's where the amygdala and hippocampus, they hijack the brain. And that's the subcortical emotional part of your brain there. And there's no cognition down there. It's reaction. And, um, we don't want witnesses doing that because that's how witnesses say inflammatory things. They say stupid things. They say harmful things because they're not, they're not using their prefrontal cortex. That's the logical part of the brain. We want, and this, there's two parts of that brain that can communicate and there's only two. And it's like a light switch. It's either up or it's down. There is no in between. That's it. And when they get, when they start to fight, those, uh, the, you know, those uh, chemicals start to get secreted by the hypothalamus, uh, cortisol starts rushing through their body and they stop thinking. 
They stop thinking. And the worst thing a witness can do is not think because that's when crazy, terrible things come out of their mouths. And every time we see that, I mean, 99% of the time, um, there's an emotional involvement in that. So the key is to cut out the emotion, learn how to play the game. That's why Steve and I call it, you got to play the game. And the game here is knowing, knowing when not to fight, knowing when not to fight, right? Now, that being said, I think there's a time to be uh, firm. I think there's a time to be very uh, assertive. Okay. There are some answers that you, I think, are very appropriate to slam dunk that aren't defensive or aggressive. For example, on those blame questions. You know, isn't it true, you know, you violated the standard of care or isn't it true your hiring practices are negligent? You can, I mean, I want, I want, I want that to be an emphatic. No, I completely disagree with that. And use some emotion that kind of that way, because it's very brief and it's more of an emphasizing your answer. But when they start pivoting time after time, and by the way, they're always pivoting after a fact, which looks, this looks and sounds terrible so it's it's bad news all around yeah I, I tell people to agree with grace disagree with conviction yeah yeah it's just the brain's not wired to do that baxter <laughs> the brain is not wired to do that hence why we have to rewire that brain so they can pull it off well i, yeah. I appreciate very much the, the the work that you guys do to bring science to the practice of law you go oh, yeah. through law school you learn about depositions you learn about this stuff and psychology and the science uh, is never brought up or brought in. And I think it's really important uh, what you guys are doing to get that type of message out through the podcast. Obviously, put it more into practice when, when folks hire you for your work. But uh, I, man, this is, this is a lot of fun today to, to put together yeah. uh, the, the science with, with the practice. And uh, I, I know it's going to help a lot of people. I need a faculty. I need a faculty position. I'm sorry. Cause I mean, I, I give guest lectures at law schools and um, I went to Pepperdine. I've been to Pepperdine twice to give, by the way, have you been to Pepperdine's Ter campus? Terrible place to have to go. I'm sorry. Holy sh I mean, Oh my God. How would you get anything done there? It's the most beautiful place in the year on top of a mountain looking over the Pacific ocean. I don't know how you get any homework done there. Um, uh, you, I went to UNC, I went to uh, university of Tennessee and I, I've lectured at these places. And when I start having this discussion that we're having, I have advanced law students looking at me like I have three heads going, huh? Prefrontal what? Amygdala, huh? Wait, what? Huh? What? zero clue about what I'm talking about. But I tell you what, at the end of all those lectures and like most of the turn, like I God, I wish I would have had this training. I wish I would have known that because I would have done things a heck of a lot different. So I don't know, Steve, maybe you and I need to get like some type of traveling uh, faculty thing going on where we go to law schools and then. Sounds good. Uh, Let's do it. <laughs> we, we, we love to have you at the University of Arkansas. The school. I would be happy to come to Fayetteville uh, and uh, happy to do that if you want to throw my, my name out there. Now, the fact that I spoke at Tennessee, they may not be happy with that, but I didn't, I didn't buy any Tennessee gear or anything. I wouldn't, I'd never wear orange in Fayetteville, so you don't have to worry about that. Yeah. Their, their baseball team didn't make the College World Series. We're okay. There, yeah. <laughs> there you go. 
All right. Well, Baxter, I appreciate you having me on. I'm sure we'll, we'll sure we'll have you you back, and you and I will be talking offline more about other things yeah. and other topics. So I'm glad you got the chance to jump on and pick your brain and bring this up and bring it to to the attention of others. I think it's a great topic and something that we had talked about it on the podcast, but just hadn't addressed in such detail. So I'm glad you I'm glad you pushed it uh, pushed it forward for us. So yeah. good seeing Thank you, guys. Bill. Thanks. Always good seeing you too. This has been another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. See you.